Amen. There is no shortage of speculations about how a person can find acceptance before God. Many people assume that like the various paths that lead a hiker to the top of a mountain, all religions, people assume, all religions eventually lead us to God. This view is widely celebrated, of course, because the world celebrates pluralism and inclusivism. But this view, I warn you, is biblically false. Jesus spoke very clearly, very succinctly, of a broad path on which many people travel, and that the destination of this wide path is destruction. He then pointed out that there's only one narrow path out of the, uh, there's only one narrow path which leads to life. And only a few people, Jesus said, find that path. And according to Jesus, there are only two approaches or two ways to life. In life, you can either take the path that leads to destruction or you can take a path that leads to life. And you say, where did Jesus say that? Matthew chapter 7. You can look it up and carefully read that particular explanation. The Bible contains a number of exclusive claims of Christ, and this is one of those. There is only one spiritual path leading to God, and all the other paths, although they're popular, although they're widely practiced, although they're highly respected in the minds of many people in today's world, these religious paths lead to spiritual death. And there are only two approaches when it comes to dealing with God. One is to strive to find acceptance before God by gaining somehow our own righteousness by performing deeds which somehow are going to conform to the standards that God has established. This approach places a tremendous amount of emphasis on human merit, human performance, and human achievement. And this broad road of religious requirements can be called the road or the path of self-justification. Or you could call it the path of good works. And there, the only other way, the, the narrow way to God, is the way of justification by grace through faith alone. And the way of faith in Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, is the opposite of human achievement. And this is the biblical approach and the path which leads to no condemnation. It leads to those who, in traveling it, they find that they find on that path complete acceptance by God. They find that they can relate to God on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for them on his finished work on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. And that's why we can talk about what a friend we have in Jesus. That's for those who are walking along this path who understand it's by faith and trusting in Christ. Now the text we're looking at this morning, in Galatians chapter 3, which by the way is in uh, page uh, in your Bible, Pew Bible, is 1385. I'd like you to follow along as we read this text, because what we're going to read here is Paul is continuing in, a, in an already begun argument. He's coming through an argument in which he's going to make several points in trying to persuade those that he's writing to they had begun walking on this path, the narrow path of faith, 
But he's now writing them concerned that they were thinking about abandoning that path for the wider path that leads to destruction and bondage, that is, human achievement and works. So Paul is disproving the main premise of those who are relying on attempts to keep the law of God by demonstrating that such an approach cannot and will never lead to eternal life. So let's listen to what he says here in chapter 3 of Galatians, beginning in verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. It's clear. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit, not through works, but through faith. Now, our first point here I want us to consider these two paths, these two ways, is the first one, the way of doing, of justifying ourselves by works. The way of doing or justifying ourselves by works. Now, one of the primary reasons that the way of good works does not lead to blessing, spiritual blessing and spiritual life, is because the requirements in order to do this are, humanly speaking, unattainable. Can't do it. If a person sets out to follow the law of God in order to gain acceptance before God, that person must keep the entire law of God. Not occasionally, not most of the time, but all the time, and must keep that law perfectly every day. And so when Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 27, the passage that we read, and I thought Jason did an excellent job in reading that text for us this morning, and you guys did an excellent job amening, is it's easy to say, yeah, you deserve to be cursed because you broke that law. It's easy to say that, but the fact is, the point of what Paul is doing in citing this text from Deuteronomy chapter 27 is to remind his readers that this is the burden that is the responsibility that falls on every person who is somehow attempting to justify themselves by works. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things, he says, verse 10, written in the book of the law to perform them. What's he saying there? Well, he's saying, don't you understand what Moses was emphasizing to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land across the Jordan River there? He's saying, listen, I'm giving you a sample not comprehensive, but I'm giving you a sampling of the kind of list that is now required of you that you must follow God's laws. And if you don't, there's going to be consequences to that. Disobedience to God's law brings serious, inescapable penalties. Now, some of you are already saying, wait a minute. Now, God is going to treat people that way? Who does God think he is making up some kind of curses on people? 
What kind of God is that? Before you get there, let me just let you back up and let me ask you a question. Who made the world? Okay, thank you. Uh, who, who made all the people of the earth? Okay, so if God made everything and God made all the people of the earth, then he absolutely, without question, he is the king and the virtual ruler of this earth. And therefore, he knows what's best with how the world should be operated. He knows what's appropriate and what's not appropriate in the world that he created. And therefore, as a holy and just God, he knows that it is right and fitting that there should be consequences of those who break his and, and have infractions of his moral laws because he knows that by doing so, they are defying his authority. They are thumbing their nose at the king who rules over all things. So, disobedience, as I said a moment ago, to God's laws brings about serious, inescapable consequences. So this summary statement in Deuteronomy 27, Paul, inciting that, he knows that there is a number of people who are reading that citation. <laughs> he knows there are people out there saying, oh, listen, here, I'm doing, I'm doing my best. I'm keeping the laws very carefully, thank you very much. And he's writing to them, reminding them, listen, you people are wrongly assuming that you're not under the curse of God because you're so proud of all the things you're doing which are written in the law. But they don't realize that they're actually, surprisingly and shockingly, with this particular text he's citing here, he's shocking them to realize that his readers, and perhaps some of us today, don't realize that everybody, Everyone, the most religious person who is meticulous and keeps all sorts of religious rules, as well as the immoral person, the lawless person, the person who doesn't give a rip about anything having to do with God, lives however they want, they don't, don't answer to anybody, no matter who you are or where, where you are on that continuum. The fact is that you are under a curse, a divine curse. And why is that? Because all of us, and not a single one of us is an exception. All of us have not kept God's laws perfectly. Period. God's standard is not, well, if you get a passing grade of 65 or 66, then maybe you'll just make the cutoff. That doesn't work. Turn in your Bible to Matthew 548. Matthew 548, page 1146 in your pew Bible, on the right-hand side. Jesus is giving a sermon here, and the sermon includes what we call the Beatitudes. It's a sermon on the mount, and he's speaking to people who have a tendency to think, because they were being taught by these people who are rule keepers, religious rule keepers, and he's saying your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of all these rule keepers, because that's not it. You're not in the kingdom if that's what you're trying to do, keep all these rules. And he has this real kicker here at the end of chapter 5. He says... My standard and the standard of my Father in heaven is not 65% or do the best you can. It is perfection. And so Jesus pulls the rug from under the self-righteous religious rule keepers of his generation, reminding them of this extremely high standard. Look at verse 48. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. rut -row. That's not good news for you and me. If you're a rule keeper, you've got problems right there. 
And if you just sort of skim past that and ignore that reality, my friend, you're not listening to what the text of Scripture is saying. The Bible insists that no one comes close to keeping all the rules and the laws of God all the time. You say, all right, can you verify that one? Yes, I will. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46. There is no man who does not sin. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand or who act wisely, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, if you're still protesting in your mind, you say, well, wait a minute. If you're still saying that, keep listening. Isaiah 53, all of us have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And if that's not enough, I encourage you to read as a homework assignment, Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And keep reading it, and keep reading it till you finally realize, I've got to close my mouth and realize I'm guilty. Because I have broken God's laws not once, not a couple of times. I break them every day in numerous ways. I can't even keep track of them all. And let me tell you, this truth was really pressed home to my conscience in quite an effective way recently. I wasn't smiling about it, but I can now. I recently received in the mail... You just never know what you're going to get in the mail anymore. Do you folks, I mean, it's amazing what you get in the mail, right? Here is a, a, a nice letter. It wasn't so nice at the time, but it's, it's well written. Nice color printing. Some of you may have seen one of these before. It has, uh, yeah, it's called the uh, Red Light Safety Program, Suffolk County, New York. Notice of liability, red light camera violation. This was sent to me. had my name on it. It was informing me that I have violated the laws of Suffolk County regarding these red traffic lights. Now, the letter provides very interesting information because it's very specific. And it indicates that at a certain time, a date, a location, and included photographs, how dare they put my car in print right here with my license plate right on there, and I indeed had to admit, yes, I was driving that car at that time. I was the operator of that car. I knew exactly where I was going. Actually, I was going out of town. And it, and it was about 10 o'clock in the morning, getting ready to go down on 495. And so I'm, okay, I'm with you there. But then they say, listen, you drove through a red light? I said, oh, no way. I don't drive through red lights. So now I'm thinking, all right. I told my wife about it. You know, I'm protesting, saying, this is ridiculous. What a fundraising thing. Well, you know, whatever. So then after I protest a while, and I say, you know, I did stop, and I do remember looking left because their people are coming on the service road. I looked to see if anybody's coming. Nobody's coming. So I did take a right after I stopped. Or so I thought I stopped. Because they also provide a link online when you can look at the video. <laughs> so I thought... Hey, I got this case. So I go online, look at the video. Sure enough, there's my car. Here's the red light. I see that. And sure enough, the car comes and slows down and then just goes right on. Guilty. $80 later, I'm guilty. And let me tell you something. If for no other reason, this thing has reminded me that I prided myself 
that I'm a good driver. I try very hard to drive safely, and I have a fairly decent record to show it. But let me tell you something, folks. This letter and that video knocked me down and made me back away from saying, I'm going to fight this thing, I'm going to protest, I'm going to make a big deal of this, because what the point here is what? I never really stopped. And if all of us consider ourselves as quote-unquote good spiritual drivers, we are the good rule keepers of the world who pride ourselves on keeping the laws of the road. If, if we think we're that great, but what would happen if we were videotaped at all times when you were ve- operating a vehicle? Suppose they had the satellite over you, you know? They got these, uh, those things that take photos. What do they call those things? Um, they have the... Um, Drones, suppose they're just watching the sky for you all the time, and they watch your car everywhere you're going. Suppose there is a way in which there is photographed everything you're doing as you operate your vehicle. Imagine, every time you failed to operate that vehicle according to the laws of the state and of the county in which you're operating that vehicle, suppose it was recorded and presented to you as evidence. Every single time. I'm talking about, folks, one mile above the posted speed limit. Boom, you're guilty. Suppose you got an infraction every time you came to, you didn't make that complete stop at the stop sign. God help us in Lake Grove. They're all over the place. Okay, so suppose you did get an infraction every time you didn't stop completely the car. How about talking on your cell phone every time you answered that phone thing? Oh, I'm just going to do it real quickly. Whatever it is. The point here is what I'm trying to say is, listen, Imagine if you received a letter in the mail for every single violation of the law you committed that's on the books, many of which you don't even know what those laws are. I don't know what half of the laws are, and and yet you're still responsible. Isn't it true that most of us would say, I can't afford it to drive a car that way, getting an $80 fine with $50 with $30 processing, whatever. And so if I got all of those every time, you would say what? I can't afford to drive. Because what? Nobody drives a car 100% right all the time. Now the question is this. What would happen if the law said one infraction of any part of the laws pertaining to driving a vehicle safely on the roads in the state of New York? One infraction and you lose your license. Now we're getting to understand the weight of the law of God. That says, you break the law one time, you're guilty before the king of kings. You've committed cosmic treason. Now you got some heavy weight on you, my friends. $80, I can handle that once. But you get the weight of God's laws, and you think I'm going to somehow keep those laws well enough to somehow make myself right with God? The function of the laws of God are to do what? They're to point out our failings and our need for a Savior. That's what they're for. You don't believe that? Read Romans chapter 3, verse 20. That says that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's through the driving laws that I learn how the lousy driver I am. I cut across even on the line sometimes. I don't stay always in the right lane. I cut corners sometimes. Nobody's coming. I mean, that's the way I drive. And the fact is we all live that way when it comes to God's moral laws. Now, the Bible says that another name for sin, and this is in your notes, another name for sin in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, interestingly enough, 
is lawlessness. Lawlessness. I don't want to follow the laws of God. I have my own laws. I'm doing it my way. So we go our own way. And how do we do that? Oh, in so many different ways. We operate in cosmic rebellion against the king of the universe. We step out of line. We defy the authority over us and say, no, I'm not doing that. You say, well, I'm not that bad of a person. Yes, but if you want to measure in the impurity of your thought life, you want to go there? You want to measure the law against how impure thoughts you entertain in your mind? Every day? All your life? What about saying things that are not truth and truthful and accurate? You fudge on what's really true. Guilty. Do we not all feel the weight of that? What about using God's name in vain when you're angry? Using it as a cuss word when you're really ticked off? Or whatever we say. The point is this. The weight of that responsibility. If you don't feel that, my friend, you have not understood how guilty you are, how many times you've broken the law. A couple years ago, a fellow by the name of Andy Stanley wrote a booklet called How Good is Good Enough? Good question. Too many people think i got to be good enough to somehow think I can get over the line and somehow be accepted by God. He knocks that thing down six, six ways, half a dozen ways. He knocks it down as, uh, and, and clearly points out it doesn't work. His point is that too many people operate with the false assumption that God grades on the curve. But a just and holy God, my friends, he cannot, he will not overlook infractions to his laws. Exodus 34, 6. You ought to write that one down. Exodus 34, 6 says that God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. If he did, he would not be just. He would not be a fair judge. And surely this notion of trying to gain our own righteousness by keeping the law is clear. No one is good enough to go to heaven. You're not going to make it. If your attempt is to try to keep all those rules... Forget it. It's not going to work. Based on the law and our performance and trying harder and harder to keep the law doesn't help you, my friend. It brings you further and further under the curse of that law because you keep breaking it. So let me ask you. Are you weary of all that? Are you worn out trying to get better, become better, do better, trying to keep more and more rules? to somehow escape the consequences of this impossible standard? My friend, it's not too late to switch paths. Now is the time to change directions and reverse course while you still have opportunity. And you say, what's the first step? First step, number one, is what? Humble yourself. Guess what? This letter humbled me. Had me face me. I had to face the reality of who I am and what I do. You've got to say, that, that was me. I, I take responsibility. Yes, I have broken the standard. That's the first step, my friend. You admit, you admit humbly before God that you've broken his standards and you feel and understand the weight of what that meant toward your relationship to God. And secondly, what you do is that you would then repent of any and all vain and worthless attempts to try to rely on keeping a bunch of rules that somehow now is going to make that right with God doesn't mean a thing to God when you still have all this long, huge list and you'll never, ever pay them off. 
you run out of resources. There's nothing to offer. It's a fascinating true life story of Martin Luther. He was an extremely religious man to the max, spending hours every day praying. And in his professorship in a particular theological school, he was studying the Word a lot, and he was all around the Bible, reading it, pondering it, confessing his sins all the time, aware of huge areas in which he fell short. He, he had no problem admitting that. But there came a time in his life when he was not only highly motivated, highly dedicated as a rule keeper, but he came a period of time when he was sick for a period of time, and then he got depressed. So someone recommended to him, why don't you get out of town? Why don't you go to Rome? Why don't you find that some of these uh, various sites they have there, religious sites, that might help you? So he went to this particular church called St. John Lateran. I was there years ago with a study tour in college, in which the alleged stairs, this is alleged, uh, stairs that were supposedly in um, Pilate's uh, his home or the, his, his uh, office, if you will, the place he had headquarters there in Jerusalem. These were the actual stairs from there, and that's the actual stairs that Jesus climbed up when he was arrested, and the blood of Christ actually dripped on those stairs, supposedly. I don't know if there's anybody who can confirm these things archaeologically, but the point is they're there, and that it is highly taught that if you were to go up those stairs and confess your sins and you're praying over each stair, that the Pope promised indulgence and therefore promised forgiveness of sin to the pilgrim who would make a way up those stairs. So here's Luther saying, maybe that'll help my heavy heart. And he goes and does that. And as he's halfway up the stairs, on his knees, confessing and saying these particular recited prayers, a thought came to his mind that he had been studying and thinking about a long time ago, and he saw everybody else doing the same thing. It's rather crowded. And he says to himself, I remember reading in scriptures, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And the more he... They, he, that just got a hold of him. He said it over and over in his mind. He thought to himself, he's making a way up the stairs. He says, I'm done. I'm stopping with all these prayers. He got up. He went back to the town he was from in Witten, Wittenberg. And it was there he began to say what? And there you have the quote in your notes of what happened for Luther is that he just had this huge realization, a huge way of understanding, no longer trying to keep all these things, these religious rules, and try to somehow gain forgiveness or gain right acceptance before God. He said, I threw all that way and now I understand it's faith in Christ. For some of you, I'm afraid that you need to look a little more carefully into our hearts to say, I wonder if you struggle with profound insecurity and anxiety. If you're a rule keeper, you're always wondering, have I done enough? You're never sure that you adequately are living up to the standards that you know you should be. I wonder if you're overly sensitive to criticism as one of the underlying reasons because you are trying to be a rule keeper, somehow trying to find acceptance with God and other people, and so you tend to measure yourself by other people around you, and you're envious of other people who somehow seem to outshine you. My friend, I call you. Get off that path as soon as you can and get on the path that we're now going to look at, the path, the way of faith. Point number two, the way of faith. 
being justified through trusting in Christ alone on the basis of grace alone. Not by merit or good works, but on grace alone. Now this way of faith, it's not works, but it's the way of faith. It's the only way where sinners can find acceptance before God. And Jesus, and only Jesus, is able to redeem any and all of us who live under the curse of sin, who have a citation of things that we've done in infractions of God's law that's as long as between here and around the world ten times. If they're all really recorded, giving the specific time, date, where you were, what you were doing, I mean, the list would go around the world several times, folks. Come on. And the way of faith points us away from our performance, Paul is saying here in this text. And he's pointing away from our failures to keep the law, and he's pointing us now to the one who sets us free by paying our ransom. Look what he says here, chapter 3. He says, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus paid a price that was very high. In Matthew chapter 20, we read that the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. And so he lived a perfect life, and he never faced the curse of God due to sin. Only Jesus is able to rescue sinners like you and me who live under the curse of our sin. And how did he do it? Because He is the Redeemer, and Redeemer means a person who secures the release of people who are captive, who've been taken, perhaps, and are arrested somehow, or they're they're held by force, and perhaps because they have some sort of obligation they cannot meet, and the person who redeems them pays that and sets them at liberty. And the payment that they make is called a ransom. Maybe you've heard of a kidnapping, where there's someone who kidnaps, and they, they say, okay, the ransom is $2 million. Come up with cash, unmarked bills, blah, blah, blah. Well, Jesus is the one who's paying. And the way of faith brings hope because it promises us eternal life. Eternal life in the Bible is this. It's knowing the true true and living God, and it's knowing Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have eternal life. You say, how can I know God? Well, the way of faith calls you to forsake all your attempts to try to be good enough and gain favor with God, and instead... We're commanded to believe upon Christ, to trust Christ, to put all of our weight and confidence in Christ and what he did for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And the only escape anyone's ever going to find from the curse of the law is to be found in Jesus' work of redemption, of taking people captive and setting them free by the payment of a price. And the way to be justified is through faith, through grace, not by works. And so look at there, Paul cites Deuteronomy 27 and verse 10, He's proving that justification cannot be by the works of the law. That was the point of verse 10, okay? It's because if you're going to do works, that's not going to be, you're not going to find justification there. Then he cites another verse in verse 12 from Habakkuk chapter 2, in which he says, the righteous shall live by faith, and he does that to prove that justification must be by faith in Christ. So he's proven the opposite side. It's not by works, it's by faith. Now take a moment and reflect upon the fact that Jesus bore the curse of our sin in his redemptive work on the cross and out of his deep and profound love for condemned sinners like you and me, guilty sinners, 
with a long rap sheet of cosmic treason before the God of all the world. Here is Jesus. He paid an exorbitant ransom by assuming the curse that we deserved. Now, some people have wondered about two aspects of Jesus' death on the cross. Number one, why did Jesus, while on that cross, cry out these words? It's called the words of dereliction. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that? This is Jesus now crying out this statement. It's from Matthew 27, where it's found. He's quoting a psalm. And the answer is this, that Jesus made the exclamation on the cross to indicate that our curse, that our punishment was transferred now to him. And that the suffering he was undergoing was not a suffering that he deserved, but he's acknowledging he is undergoing a horrendous suffering, the wrath of God, but it wasn't because of what he did to deserve it. He was experiencing God forsakenness, not because of anything in himself, but for our salvation. He underwent the punishment, the condemnation that should have been meted out to you and to me. And this is the wonder of the gospel. That when Jesus died on the cross, he died as a substitute. And that's the key word I want you to notice in this text in verse chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse, what's next? For us. For us. You see, in the gospel, the curse that we deserve has now been transferred to Jesus. And he takes the suffering, he takes the punishment, he takes, in a sense, the payment, the responsibility to pay all that's owed. He takes it upon himself because he's the perfect law keeper. He had no reason to pay anything. He's doing it as our substitute. That ought to knock your socks off if you really understand that. Because when you think about what we deserve versus what he's doing for us, it leaves you with a sense of, how could anyone possibly do that? And we had a song during the offertory about a love that's so great, you know, do all these sacrifices. Think about the idea of a redeemer paying this ransom for a long rap sheet that you and I have that you can't even keep track of all the different infractions. What a great love. What incredible love he shows. Now, another question regarding Christ's work on the cross. Why did the Jews find the message of the cross so offensive? Why did they find it so objectionable? I mean, it's a wonderful message that someone would love someone to lay down their life for them and pay that kind of debt. But what was so offensive to many of the Jews? Well, the answer is that they understood from their perspective and what was taught to them that when a criminal is put to death for committing a serious sin and crime, that person's dead body is then hung on a tree as an outward sign to everybody. They can all see that this person has been divinely rejected. They have no favor showing to them from God. They are cut off from God. They are now under the curse of God. And that's what's happened to them is because they clearly have defied the authority of the King of Kings. And so as Jesus was hung on a cross made of wood, he did so not bearing his own curse, but our curse. And the apostles then knew, knew this particular, this uh, significant angle of things, and they emphasized that Jesus liberated sinners from, through the process of redemption, and he sets us free by the payment of this ransom. 
And so when he was hung on that tree, God made it known that all that Jesus, the one who's on that tree, he is now undergoing the curse that you and I deserved. Peter, in chapter 5 of Acts, of all the people, it's interesting that Peter would pick up on this. Peter, who needed to be what? Reminded of the gospel of grace in Galatians chapter 2, is the same one who wrote later on in life. He, man, he didn't forget this at all. He says, listen here, Acts chapter 5, God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, he's pointing to all the Jewish people around him, by hanging him on a what? On a tree. Not a cross, a tree, he says. What's he saying? He bore curse. He became a curse at that point for us. And then in the own, his own writings of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, maybe you want to turn there in your Bible, 1440. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter 2, 1440. Look what he says here. This is a powerful verse. He says, 1 Peter, verse 24, chapter. He himself, this is Jesus, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the, what does your translation say? On the cross. It's literally wood. On the tree. On that tree that was put, put put down in the ground, that he might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Look what he says next. For you were continually straying like sheep. What's that saying? You were breaking the laws. You were not living under the authority of the shepherd. But now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Oh, what a beautiful picture that is of the gospel, my friend. Peter knew that his Lord took his curse upon himself when he was on that tree, on that cross. And Peter is just reveling at the fact that he deals with me in grace. He deals with me in grace, not by works. Now here's what I want us to challenge you to think about here. I want to ask you to use your imagination for a minute because I want to go back to Galatians 3. And I want us to notice what Paul ends this little section on by contrasting the way of works. He says in verse 14, in order that. Christ did all these things in order that, for the purpose of this. That in Christ Jesus, and by the way, that's where you're going to find these blessings, is when you're united to Christ. When you are united to Christ by faith. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And you have to back up to the previous section to understand what all the blessings were. It's the gospel, basically, that you will find be declared righteous on the base of faith, not by your works, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He moves in the direction, instead of, curse and law he says you'll know blessing through the spirit through faith imagine the joy of being able to drive a car the car of your life as it were knowing that the infraction notices that are sent to you every time you break the law all those notices are sent to you saying paid in full paid in full Paid, not with easy pass, it's paid with what I call J.R. Pass. The Jesus Redemption Pass. And from the huge resources of what he accomplished on the cross, which we can't even measure, of the amount of grace and mercy, the resources found there, 
He says, out of that huge payment, make the payment on this guy's infraction right here. Paid in full. Treat him in grace. Because even though he's a lawbreaker, even though he continually still does wrong, he's forgiven. I've paid for it. You're free to go. And then imagine that if that driver of the car of your life, if you're driving along there, not only do you have the JR pass in your car, thank God, for all those long infractions, then you also are what? I'm driving with the Spirit Himself living in me, reminding me of Christ, pointing me to Christ, saying, I'm here to help you in your driving. I'm here to give you a reason to why you're driving, because this car is not your own. The car is given to you. Somebody paid dearly for this car. It's now given to you by grace. Even though you're a lawbreaker, even though you've broken the laws a gazillion of times, I'm here with you and I'm going to help you drive. Do you think, my friend, that changes the way you think about how you're going to live your life? I think it would be a little bit more motivated to say, you know, I think I'm, I want to honor God when I'm driving this car. It's such a privilege. What a blessing. I've got the JR Pass. I've got the Holy Spirit here. I got, it's such a blessing. I'm a child of God. I can bring to God any concern I have. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Christ gave himself for us. Did you catch that? Substitute. To redeem us from what? From all wickedness. And to purify for himself a people that are like his very own. Eager to do what's good. My friend, if your eagerness to do good is because you're trying to keep all the rules so that you can somehow make it, it'll wear you out, my friend. It'll burn you down. You'll feel the curse. But if you understand the gospel, if you understand Christ, if you have your heart filled with the wonder of what Christ has done for you, he paid that ransom by him redeeming you the payment of himself, my friend, and he's given you all these blessings, then I want to live for you, Lord. I want to do what's appropriate here because you own me, and I, and I thank you, and you forgive me for my failings yesterday, and you'll forgive me what I do today, but I just want to love you with my life. It makes all the difference. And I would suggest one more thing to you. Would you just turn a couple pages over to Galatians chapter 6? And I want you to show you, what happens if the Spirit really isn't working in my life? Here's one more homework assignment. If you want to really have a powerful effect, and it goes far beyond what I could say in this, in this time frame, is to read the, book, the chapter, sorry, not the book, the chapter of Romans 8 once every day for this week and begin to notice what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a true child of God who is not living according to works. He's living by faith in Christ and the Spirit of God is now in him. You read about the Spirit and see how the Spirit will help you. And here's my friend, here's the encouragement. If the Spirit of God is working in me and I'm now living a life based on faith, I'm living, the just shall live by faith in Christ, then what happens? Then I am not going to be a person who is, is magnifying the faults of other people who's living it by comparing myself to somebody else and say, well, at least I don't do that. And trying to build myself up by somehow thinking I'm doing better, I'm trying harder, I'm accomplishing more, I checked off more little boxes on my week than you did, and they're, they're no longer doing that. What are they doing? Verse 1 of chapter 6. If you understand the Spirit of God working in you, you are a spirit person, a spiritual person, a person who's being guided and helped by the Spirit of God, then if you find a person caught in a trespass, as a spiritual person, you're not there to condemn them. You're there to what? Restore them. 
your heart deals with people much differently because what? Because the gospel has changed the way you see people and see the world because you see yourself differently. You understand how messed up you are. You understand how you, many times you, you've gotten all the infraction notices. You understand that and you understand grace. And now you look at people and you say, listen, I'm coming to you gently. Man, I'm a sinner and I, I know for sure, I know many times, I, I, I'm amazed at how gentle God's been with me through Christ. I'm coming to you and I'm dealing with you gently, but I'm pointing you to Christ. Because he didn't redeem us to live like you're living. He redeemed us to live a life that pleases him. And notice what he says in verse 2, bearing one another burdens. And then we're going to fulfill another law, Christ's law, which is the law of love. I can't fully unpack all this, but my friend, this let me say, if the Spirit of God is helping you in driving the car of life, and you've got the JR Pass going, and you understand what the gospel, how huge it is in, in bringing to light your sin, but in dealing with the greatness of God's love and grace, then you guess what? then you're going to be a lot more able to love people because your heart is overflowing in love for God. How amazed you are in responding to his love, it's going to deal with how you deal with other people around you. People that annoy you, people that sin against you, people that are hard to trust, people who are whatever it is. People are difficult. Yes, so are you. Remember, you've got your own infractions. Hello, if you want us to take pictures and give you specific times, we can work on that. Some of you, it's called marriage. You know, it's like, wake up, you're a selfish person, you know? Here's my point. If you're here today and you're trying to do rule keeping, read Romans 1, 2, and 3. Keep reading it. Romans 1, 2, and 3. If you're here and you say, oh, thank God I'm not trying to keep rules. Thank you, God, I'm a child of God. Read Romans 8. And say, Lord Jesus, show me. Show me what I need to know. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, may you have your work in our hearts. Take the hammer of your word, Lord, and crush any proud, hard heart that's here today, Lord, of somebody who's trying, trying, trying. In the path of works, in the vain attempt, Lord, help them to see that is just a waste of time and highly offensive. And Lord, point them to Christ. Help them to humble themselves, admitting that they need a Savior, need a Redeemer. And Lord, for those of us who feel the weight of all of our infractions, who know what it is to have the long list of all of their faults so clearly evident to them, Lord, show us Jesus on the cross, on that tree, bearing our curse. Show us the joys of the gospel, Lord. Help us to be forgiven as children of God and to enjoy the, the pass of Jesus, the Redeemer pass. And help us to drive the cars of our lives, Lord, in a way that would honor you. And be more loving to those around us, Lord, more gracious, more forgiving, more kind. Not because we're trying to be better, but Lord, because you are so loving and generous and gracious to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.